millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to Living History UK. Today we're going to take a look at the kit and equipment as used by a private soldier of the Coldstream Guards at the Battle of Waterloo all the way back in 1815. So let's get cracking. We have two types of headwear here. So looking at this one first, this is a fore and aft forage cap. So this is the undress cap of the period. So if the soldier was undertaking fatigues or off duty, in camp and so forth, this is the style of hat that he would be wearing. And what you can see here is the, the cloth that's being used is a broad cloth, so it's a common cloth, the cheapest cloth, but it's actually a royal blue. And the royal blue link here is of course it's a guards regiment, but this is the same cloth as used on the cuffs of the regimental jacket. And the uh, worsted lace that's been uh, sewed around the edges and also through the holes here to, to keep it together. That is the uh, colour of the coat, of course. So you've got the classic royal blue with the, um, the sort of brick red, or madder red as it should be called. And then inside, you've just got a couple of pieces of serge cloth, which is a thinner style of broadcloth and much cheaper to produce, which is typically used as a lining. As you can see here, it's uh, just a nice little serge lining there. So that is the undress cap. Now, leaving that to one side, we're going to focus on the piece of headwear actually worn by the soldier uh, in combat on the fields of Waterloo. And this is the regimental cap. Now, many of you might be screaming at the camera and saying, oh no, it's a shako. Well, that's what Sharp might lead you to believe. And I have to admit, I'm a massive fan of Sharp. I grew up on it. It's one of my favorite series of all time. However, research indicates this is what's called a regimental cap. And to be specific, it's the 1812 pattern cap, or as the guys at the time nicknamed it, the bang up, the bang up to date cap. So. What this is, is it's a, um, a false front. It's also sometimes called the Belgic uh, cap or Belgic shako by some people. But this is the 1812 pattern regimental cap. However, 
the cap didn't look like this on the fields of Waterloo because, of course, we had the uh, now famous issue of the weather. And the British very much brought the weather to the battlefield of Waterloo in that case. And the weather, it was absolutely chucking it down uh, all morning. And the, when the rain finally stopped, the guns opened up. Now, one of the inventions of the 1812 cap, its predecessor, the, uh, the stovepipe cap, uh, unfortunately didn't have a foul weather cover. So when it got wet, it went out of shape and there was a lot of money wasted. So they thought, well, how can we save these caps from being uh, broken and from being misshaped and to make them look presentable? So they came up with this, a piece of oil canvas. It's as simple as that. And when the order was given, the foul weather cover, as this is known, was, uh, was put on. So the, the plume would come out uh, and so would the cords typically as well, but just to expedite this uh, demonstration, the cover would go straight over the cap, like so. And we'll just take it off the mannequin head there. So the cover goes over like so, but at the back there's a flap that goes up. So we're just going to fold this piece of canvas up. And I have to give a massive shout out to the group that I'm in, the uh, Coldstream Guards 1815. Fantastic living history group. Uh, this cap in particular is made by um, our leader, our head honcho, Clive Jones, and he makes these by hand, and what a sterling job he does indeed. So with the uh, cover now in situ, and the back folded up, we then get the two tapes here, and we'll tie them at the front, just a typical uh, knot like so. That keeps the cover in place, stops the wind from um, blowing it off, and voila, we have the foul weather cover uh, in situ. And that is the uh, order of dress for the cap that the, uh, the troops used on the whole at Waterloo. So next up on our whistle stop tour of the Coldstream Guardsman's Kit Circa 1815 is uniform. So we're going to look at the linen shirt first. This is a very basic shirt, nothing fancy, certainly no frilly collars or anything like that. This is just a simple soldier shirt made out of linen. It's got a button at the collar. You'll occasionally see tie tapes as well. Um, fairly baggy sleeves and a little cuff uh, there as well, which you can do up. Soldiers at the time typically didn't wear underwear. It wasn't a common thing. Women would wear something called a shift, which is essentially a very long shirt. Men just wore a shirt. So with the underwear out the way, the next item we're going to look at, we're going to take a little peek at this. Now these are overalls. So in 1812, uh, the British Army had a communique. Uh, before that point, they were using... Um, breeches, white trousers. In 1812, they realised after you know, sort of campaigning through the peninsula that they weren't particularly fit for purpose. White is, is not a great colour to keep clean, doesn't look very presentable. So what did they do? They came up with these. So these are overalls. And these are made from broadcloth, so a common cloth. And they're very hard wearing. You can also use a raw edge on them as well, which is very good. It saves on material, saves on time. Very important. And these are um, just standard straight leg trousers, nothing fancy about them at all. You've got what's called a full front just here, which means that if you need to go to the toilet for a number one, then you just drop this uh, flap down and you can do your business through this hole here. So uh, very, very practical in that sense. They're very high-waisted trousers as well, so they sit very high up here, just underneath uh, my man boobs, let's say, and uh, very functional uh, trousers in that sense. Nothing too fancy, and these were... Um, uniform trousers across the whole of the British Army, with only a couple of excep ex exceptions in that case. But we won't go down that rabbit warren just now. And last but not least is the famous British red coat, or in particular, soldier's jacket, because that's what it's called at this point. 
So it's made from broadcloth, so it has madder red broadcloth uh, body and sleeves. The cuffs or facings, you can see this blue here, that's royal blue broadcloth. And then we have worsted tape here, which is sewn on in the specific Coldstream regimental pattern. So almost every other regiment bar the guards had a specific um, sort of colouring in their lacing, uh, whereas the Coldstream guards had a specific style of the looping being put on, as it's called, on the front of the jacket. And you'll see the buttons are on uh, in pairs, and there's 10 of them on the, on the front there. And you had 10 companies in a battalion at this time. So eight of those companies were Sense Company, which would be the same soldier's jacket as this, so they make up the bulk of the battalion. One company would be the Grenadier Company, and the other would be the Light Company. Now, both the Light and Grenadier Company had uh, wings on their shoulder here, which would be uh, royal blue with uh, the white lace on, whereas the Grenadiers would typically have a white uh, plume and white cords on their cap. The Sense Companies would have red and white, um, and then the light company would have uh, the light company bugle uh, along with the green plume as well. And you'll see that there's actually two types of buttons used on, on coats. So uh, you have the small uh, button which is used to, to uh, button up the center front. But you also have the larger buttons as well. So typically these were used to button back the cuffs in uh, the 18th century. But by 1815 they were just ornamental purpose only. And these buttons are pegged into position so therefore ornamental purposes only, cosmetic purposes, they don't serve any function. But you can see again, just a way of identifying what regiment you're dealing with. So you have a blue-faced regiment, which means it's a royal regiment. And then you have the specific Coldstream pattern looping on in pairs with the Coldstream buttons there. And inside the uh, jacket, you have a lining as well. So this is a serge lining. So they'd be lined in the body and the sleeves with serge typically. You do see some regiments with kersey lining and serge lining in the sleeves, but this is serge throughout. And you'll see the turnbacks here as well. So again, like the uh, the cuffs with the large buttons, whereas they would have been serving a functional purpose in years gone by, at this point it's an ornamental uh, sort of um, cosmetic reason only. So there we go, the soldier's, soldier's jacket of 1815. Footwear of the army in the 19th century is a really interesting topic. And a little story I often tell is one of this. Now, in 1809, we had something called the Retreat to Coruña. So this is where the army under Sir John Moore retreated back through Spain to the northern port of Coruña, and it was evacuated back to Britain. Sir John Moore, in the process, actually lost his life, unfortunately, but the army got away. Now, when the troops landed back in Britain, the public were appalled at the state of their uniforms and how the men were at the time. Many of them had died, and many of them were very ill, they had uniforms which were absolutely obliterated from use in Spain, and in particular, their footwear. Now, this is where a man called Mark Brunel steps in, and he is the father of Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And he went to the war office and he said, I can mass-produce footwear for the army for you. And he got the contract. And this is where something called the Brunel boot comes into play. Now, the caveat with this is these boots are not very good reproductions at all. I've only worn them a couple of times. They're not great, so bear with me. But they are a leather boot, like so. They'd have been rough side out leather, as pretty much all footwear is at the time, and they'd have been hobnailed as well. Now, when the British soldier marched onto the fields of Waterloo, he was wearing the Brunel boot, and it's a fantastic uh, piece of innovation. It was mass production uh, at its finest. British ingenuity, if you will. And that style of boot actually saw the British soldier through 
uh, with a few refinements along the way, of course, through to the ammunition boot as we now know it. So that is a typical boot, so a rough side out, leather boot, hobnailed, uh, and just above the ankle. Now, over those boots, the soldier wore uh, gaiters. So a very functional piece of kit. And he wore them over his boots, so he put his boot through the sort of stirrup of the gaiter like so, sit it over the laces, and then he would do it up around his boot like so. And once he'd got his gaiters done up, he would then drop his trouser leg over the gaiter so it sat over it like so. And it served a great purpose because it stopped things like uh, stones getting in, uh, water to a degree, and dirt and so forth. Because if you're on a long march and you've got things in your shoe, the last thing you want to do is take everything off and, uh, of course, empty your shoe because it's going to slow you down. Uh, so very functional piece of kit. Just as a little bit of a nod to what came before that, when the British soldier was wearing breeches or white overalls, he was typically wearing a long gaiter which came up to just before uh, the knee. So these were much more practical and I should imagine a lot more popular with the troops at Waterloo. I wanted to dedicate a specific segment to this and this is the leather soldier's stock. All British troops wore these, even riflemen, don't let sharp fool you. And the stock was issued to all troops and it looked pretty much like this. So you will see them more or less with either a little buckle on or a clasp buckle instead, more typically, for that matter. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Without wanting to stray too much into the realms of people's PDSM fantasies out there, uh, I'm going to pop this on and show you what it's like to wear. So you can see straight away, it's quite a cumbersome thing. Now, I can talk perfectly normal. In this sense, I can't, however, really turn my head with ease. Now, that is the purpose of it. So it wasn't to make the soldier look smart. That is, again, a little bit of a sharpism. I don't want to knock sharp too much. I'm a massive fan. But that's where it's kind of crept into the psyche of living historians and reenactors over the years. The purpose of the stock was it was for a drill purpose. So whereas nowadays in the British Army, when you hear eyes left or eyes right, you'll turn your whole head. I can't do that in a stock, as you can see. It's actually really hard. So it was the drill movement literally just was eyes left, like that, eyes right. The reason for that is at the time the British soldier was fighting shoulder to shoulder, typically. And what he needed to make sure is that he didn't start moving his head because when you turn your head, you're invariably, like when you're riding a bike, if you move your head, you invariably sort of swing out and move around. And that's what happened to the infantry soldier. So if you didn't move your head, the, the thinking was, and it indeed was the case, if you kept your head perfectly still and you kept contact with your elbows, then you'd be able to go forward in one organised mass uh, rank. 
And the stock was the bane of a soldier's life for many, many years until it fell out of use, of course. Even officers wore them. So a captain of the 60th, Blazier, he's actually documented as eating his dinner and wearing a leather stock, which is really unique. So officers wore them and the men certainly wore them too. And the Coltrane Guardsmen naturally wore the leather stock at Waterloo. We're going to look at the leather equipment set next, starting with the bayonet belt. So this is an oil tan belt that's been pipe clayed. So this is the white sort of colour you can see, but that is the, the colour of the belt otherwise. So this one needs to be pipe clayed on a fairly regular basis. Now this sits on the right shoulder, left hip, and you have the cross belt plate here. The cross belt plate links over the cartridge pouch belt and then uh, clips together like so. Of course we have the uh, bayonet here, uh, the triangular shaped bayonet. This is a blunt bayonet just for display purposes only. So you've got the triangular section of blade there. And of course this would be put onto the end of the musket to help uh, keep cavalry away. And this is the cartridge pouch. So we have the belt here, again an oil tan belt which has been pipe clayed white and the pouch itself with the Coldstream uh, star and cipher on. Opening up the pouch, we have a flap of leather. So that's to stop uh, water getting in to affect the powder. So if we fold that back, we have a wooden block and this is where your rounds of ammunition would be. So the ball would be in the bottom of the cartridge tied off and then your powder and then it'd be folded over on the top which is where you bite the top of the cartridge. So we can take that block out. So that's the, uh, that's the block with the round holes in. That comes out and then underneath we've got a metal tray. So we'll pop the pouch itself just to one side. And in the uh, tray, this is where you would store uh, pre-packaged ammunition in paper packets with string tied around. But also the soldier would keep things like this in here. So he'd keep his, uh, his turn screw. So he'd use that on the top of his musket. We'll demonstrate that shortly. He'd also keep a little bit of a rag as well, just for cleaning the, uh, the pan out. This uh, stinks of gunpowder, I've used it many times. Very, very useful bit of kit. And also a little flint pouch as well. So this is just a little handmade uh, pouch. Just undo each side. And in here, this is where you would store your gun flints. So there we go, it's a nice piece of uh, flint that does need a bit of napping. But there we go. This is the Brown Bess India pattern musket. This is what pretty much the whole of the British Army was armed with at the Battle of Waterloo, with the only real exceptions being the cavalry armed with things like carbines and the rifles armed with the infantry or Baker rifle. Now this is a smooth bore musket. It's got a flintlock mechanism. So how would you load it? Well, you come back to half cock like I've done here. You'll notice we haven't mounted a flint just yet. We'll do that in a minute. The frizzen would be opened and then a Cartridge would be drawn from the cartridge pouch, the top bit and off. You'd prime the pan, you'd close the frizzen, like so. Then you would cast the musket about. You would put the rest of the cartridge down the barrel, pouring the powder out first, followed by the ball and then the paper. You draw the ramrod through, like this. You'd twist it round, and then you would just seat the charge. They say ram home, but you don't want to do it too vigorously. You don't want to uh, bruise the powder. So you'd seat the charge, Return the rammer like so. And then you would be ready to fire. And all you need to do is bring the, the hammer back to full cock. Make ready, present, fire. They're the orders. Notice there's no make aim, fire. There's nothing like that will pick your targets. What we're doing here with a centre company is we're just firing a huge wall of lead at a distance of about 80 yards towards a massed French infantry column. 
doesn't need to be accurate. That wasn't the style of warfare. The guns just weren't up to the task. As when, when rifles start coming in and playing their part to a much uh, you know, sort of broader degree, that's when the musket starts to, to fall out of use. And of course, the rifle's a lot more expensive to manufacture than the, uh, the, than the Brown Best musket. So let's pop uh, a flint in here. So what we're doing here is just uh, clamping the jaws down, you know, not too tight. We're going to close the frizzing off and then we're going to present the uh, flint more so to the frizzing because what we're aiming to do here with the flint, and you'll see this in a moment, the flint will scrape the face of the frizzing, which will put red-hot sparks into the pan, which would ignite the powder. Now, of course, we haven't put any powder in here. I'm not an absolute idiot. Uh, but this is just for demonstration purposes only. So we have got a flint mounted in there. What we're going to do now is going to draw it back to full cock. And that, of course, is where the saying going off at half cock comes from. Uh, you can't actually go off at half cock with a brown vest musket or any sort of weapons of the period because they have a little safety mechanism um, put in. But if you go off at half cock, you basically won't go bang, whereas with a full, full cock, you will. So let's give it a go. So there you might just have seen the sparks flying into the pan. That would ignite the powder, which would then set off the charge inside the chamber just here. Now, if that hadn't worked and you fired all of your uh, rounds off, then what you would do is you resort to this. So the good old bayonet. So this is a ring bayonet. So that bit there goes over the barrel, which means you can still fire with it on. Before that, you had something called a plug bayonet. And this just falls over here, locks on like so, and voila. We're ready to give the cold steel to the enemy. So far, the soldier is not encumbered by that much kit, but things are going to change somewhat. Beginning with this, this is the haversack. So this would be worn on the soldier's left hip over the right shoulder. And this is a piece of equipment issue issued to the soldier when he was going on campaign. Now, on the surface of it, not much of a bad piece of equipment. However, when the soldier's being issued a daily ration, which included a pound of raw meat, this is where the soldier was going to put it. And you can imagine that this would have flies attracted to it, maggots. It's not a nice proposition at all. And my mind instantly switches to um, the guardsman of the third foot guards, Matthew Clay, who wrote a um, sort of memoir of his time at the Battle of Waterloo. And he said his ration on the morning of Waterloo was part of a pig's head on the bone. And all he did with that ration, he only had time to just char it in the fire and then stuff it in his haversack and he ate it throughout the day. You can just imagine the smell of that. It can't have been an attractive proposition at all. Also issued to the soldier going on campaign was this. So this is the canteen. And what this is, this is an oak banded canteen. So there's individual slots of oak which have been sized and um, put together and then banded around with two pieces of metal. And you've got a little stopper in the top just there. Now, you've got a brown leather belt, which is the same for all infantry. You will see some groups will have uh, BO on there. That's not because they've got body odor. That's for the Board of Ordnance. But actually, for the army for this period, uh, research leads us to uh, believe, um, quite almost certainly, that actually they were marked with GR. Uh, like you can see on the back here, where it's actually branded into the wood. So that's to show that it's actually government property. Uh, on here, we've got a stencil. These were done... Uh, at company level, most of the time, or even battalion level. And you can see on here, we've got the second Coltrane Guards, the second battalion of the Coltrane Guards, number six company, and it's the 14th man. So my regimental number is 614.
four. And the knapsack, this is the final piece of equipment. Now, in here, the soldier would uh, carry everything he couldn't carry on him or in his haversack. So his undress uniform would be in here, a blanket if he was lucky. He's got his mess tins on the top just there and his rolled up great coat on the top here too. And you can see again, just like the water bottle done at company or in battalion level, is the cipher put on the back of the knapsack here just to help as an identifying mark. You've got the oil tan pipe clade um, belts on here as well. And it's not a, uh, not a very nice piece of equipment to wear. It's certainly not a patch on anything like the 08 valise, that's for sure. The straps on this are very thin. So as they pass around your shoulder, they are very tight. So your arm goes through there. They run around your shoulder and they do cut the blood supply off. Um, and I've witnessed and, and many people suffering with what's called pack palsy, as it was. And you can just imagine these were not popular with the troops at all. And again, it's that kind of uh, experimental archaeology coming into play in that sense and going through the rigours of wearing the kit and equipment through the uh, same rigours as they, those guys did. And you learn a lot from it. So there we go, a snapshot into what the uh, Coldstream Guardsman was wearing at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Really hope you guys have enjoyed this video. Hope you've learned something from it. Maybe it's even fired your imagination up as well to get stuck in. If it has, get in touch with the Coldstream Guards 1815, a fabulous living history group. I'll pop their link in the uh, description of this video below. And also, if you want to help support Living History UK, you can become a member of Living History UK by following our link to Patreon. And of course, you can always send us a donation if you wish to as well. Feel free to share, like, comment and subscribe to us here on YouTube. And until next time, keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.